Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 19 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Today is Monday, May 22nd, and I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, what was that? Someone, someone has hacked into our feed and injected music. Music? Podcasts are supposed to have music? So a few people have told us. <laughs> it only took us 19 episodes to figure that one out. And, you know, we probably haven't even done it right this time. But well, at least we're trying, folks. We're, we're trying. Hopefully hopefully you heard some music, everybody. Um, this <laughs> yeah, is, it would be absolutely brilliant if we're going on and on about the music and no one actually hears a thing. Well, you know, the, the, the software I'm using to edit this this thing that we call a podcast is Audacity. So, so hopefully it's the audacity of hope and not the audacity of nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not the audacity of witty repartee today. Not today. Uh, Bobby, it's it's Monday. Our grades are in. Yes! We did it. Oh, thank you. And, and, and one of us sat through nine hours of graduation on Saturday. I went to the law school graduation. And so did I, I. And I stood for an hour and read the name of every graduating JD. You really did. It was very impressive. <laughs> and I used my best announcement voice, Steve Vladek. See, I really think that, like, in the future, the UT graduation should have, you know, and now, at JD, from <laughs> the University of Texas at Austin. His undergraduate degree is from Texas Christian University. It is, you know, fill in the blank. John Smith. If it didn't make it go long, I would do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> kind of like how we're making this podcast go long by talking about this. Indeed. It's, Bobby, it's almost like there's nothing to talk about, but actually there's there's rather a lot to talk about. All right, Steve, what have we got on the lineup for today? So apparently, since our last recording, oh, about a week ago, um, the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, is now back in the, the sort of other camp. I don't know if it's the good or the bad well, He's camp. back in my good graces. Ah, because he named uh, former FBI Director Bob Mueller, Mueller, Mueller everybody, um, as a special counsel under 28 CFR Part 600 to uh, investigate Russia. I'm quite sure it's because he heard us advocating this step on the podcast. I'm telling you, Rod <laughs> Rosenstein does not listen to our podcast. Anyway, but so Bobby, I thought we'd take a few minutes to talk about the appointment, your thoughts on it, which I think we probably already have a sense of, mm -hmm. um, what it means, um, how much power a special counsel like Director Mueller actually has, yep. and what we might look for going forward. Yep. Um, we've learned a few more things also, Bobby, related but distinct about the Trump, Comey, uh, whatever we want to call it, affair. Okay. Affair doesn't seem quite right, but you uh, know, yeah. uh, contratomps. I, I like this idea that instead of attaching the suffix gate to everything, we should now start attaching alago. <laughs> so Comey Alago. Comey Alago. Comey Alago. So we're going to talk a bit about that and whether it changes anything and any perceptions. Um, we're also going to talk, Bobby, the, the big breaking news today is that um, Michael Flynn is apparently now refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas for certain documents and other materials as part of the, I guess it's the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation. Um, we're going to talk about why he's doing that and what that might mean going forward. Um, Bobby, there was a, an interesting strike over the last couple of days in Syria by the U.S. on pro-Assad forces. We mm -hmm. might say a little bit about that. Um, you want to talk a bit about the, the a really interesting new development in the field of national security law legal scholarship. Indeed. Um, you a actually teaser have a, to stay tuned. A little teaser. You have a book review that you want to also share with us, a, a book you just finished that you really, I think, enjoyed very enjoyed much and even lot. tweeted about. Indeed. Uh, and finally, last but not least, Bobby, I lost the bet. <laughs> I got to say, it, it is a small salve to the pain I'm feeling as a Spurs fan as, as we go 0-3. 
that I well, by the time a lot of folks listen to this for to, to this podcast, they'll probably be zero and four. No, no, it's still going to be Spurs and seven, Steve. Like I originally predicted, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so crazy dramatic to come back from zero and three without our you know two fifths of our starting lineup. But nonetheless, I wouldn't hold my breath. Yeah, well. but but the the news that has redeemed Bobby at least for the moment <laughs> is the preposterous Bobby preposterous announcement by the NBA. I think it was Friday that the three finalists who will be coming to New York for the MVP award ceremony are James Harden, Russell Westbrook, and Kawhi Leonard. It may be a preposterous list, but probably not for the reason you're saying it's preposterous. Um, have they we not sh- heard we sh- of LeBron fracking James? Oh, we don't. We don't disagree that LeBron's in the top three. I think we disagree. Top three best player like on the planet. We don't disagree about who uh, gets bumped to make room for. <laughs> we we disagree about we who disagree gets about bumped. Who gets yes. bumped. Yes, but, exactly. but but the the crux of our disagreement is IOU dinner. That the the important the takeaway, my friends, is that we're going somewhere nice. Um, <laughs> All right, and also, uh, if you make it all the way to the end, Bobby, perhaps we will answer the trivia question we asked on last week's episode. I can't wait to find out. Uh, it's a and, trick and, question. And thanks to all the listeners who, who uh, tweeted in with their, their responses. It was great re- reading those. Indeed. All right, so, Bobby, let's start with uh, special counsel. What is a special counsel, and why should I care? Well, I think the most important thing to say is don't get confused and think this is the same uh, institution or office as the, the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, independent counsel. Steve, contrast for our dear listeners uh, the ways in which the special counsel institution is different from what they imagine. Most people hear this and they think, oh, I remember Ken this. Star. Ken Starr. Ken yeah. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Whitewater. Whitewater. Not- White- Whitewatergate. Whitewatergate. whitewater Alaga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's not the same thing. And, and let's unpack some of that, that legal history. Sure. I mean, so this actually goes back to Nixon. Um, so the independent counsel statute was actually part of the Ethics in Government Act of 1978, which is one of the Bobby many statutes Congress enacted in the aftermath of another presidency that fell apart in scandal and crisis and criminal investigations. And Not so they, they create this mechanism in 78 to institutionalize a bit more independence uh, in the jet, from the prosecutorial investigative perspective, in part because the experience of the Nixon administration showed you that it is hard for the Justice Department's various institutions to investigate the, the uh, president since at the end of the day— They all report they, to him. They all report to him. And, of course, this is all by design. you got to begin this topic by acknowledging that in our system, the executive power— the whole of the executive power is vested by Article Two in one office, the, the presidency. And when it turns out that that's the person you're investigating, this creates a real pickle. All right. So Congress in 1978 tried to split the pickle, solve the pickle, I eat, like that. eat the pickle um, by creating an independent council. And the idea behind the independent council is um, he or she would actually the, – the, the whole process would be initiated by the attorney general – but the independent counsel would actually be chosen by a special division, a special three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. So here, you, so right away, flag an issue. You've got this rather significant office, uh, and the power to appoint to it is is in an unusual spot. Well, so all right, so this leads, of course, to the Supreme Court's, at least Bobby and our circles, very well-known 1988 yes. decision in Morrison versus Olson. Indeed, and the thrust of which was. Uh, 
Ted Olson uh, investigating lots of good stuff under the Reagan administration. <laughs> there's, see, there's, see, it's a bipartisan thing. Actually, I'm sorry. I had that backwards. Was, Alexia Morrison was the independent counsel. Yeah, yeah. And Olson was the person she was suing. Um, so it was good stuff. So, uh, in, and so the, the Supreme Court's take on the on the appointments and removal aspects of this or, this particular mechanism? Yeah. So in Morrison versus Olson, the court votes seven to one um, to actually uphold the independent counsel statute, largely on the conclusion. Um, and let me back up a second. The D.C. Circuit had actually struck down right. independent counsel statute um, in an opinion, I believe, by Judge Silberman. Um, and it certainly rec- sounds right. If I recall, there might have been a dissent from then Circuit Judge Ginsburg. Yep, um, I think that's right. Ruth Bader. Um, so it goes to the Supreme Court. The court reverses seven to one um, in an opinion by Chief Justice Rehnquist, um, himself a Nixon appointee, mm-hmm. right, holds that first the independent counsel is an inferior officer, right. not a principal officer for purposes of the Article II Appointments Clause, which means Congress has the power to take the appointment and removal control away from the president. Exactly. Um, and then, and contrary to the D.C. Circuit, says there's no per se categorical ban on interbranch appointments, um, where some other branch, in this case the Special Division of the D.C. Circuit, holds the appointment power over an inferior executive officer. Now, see, do I recall correctly that the dissent was Scalia? And, By himself. And, and he was... He was <laughs> he was imagining that this is not going to go well in practice. Uh, it was this not going to go well in cause. Pra- Indeed. I mean, so Justice Scalia, fit, uh, I actually think Morrison, I have to say, this is getting on a tangent. Morrison is my favorite opinion of Justice Scalia's. I disagree with it, but I actually think it's Scalia at his best, right? It's early in his career. It has yeah. all the fiery, right. you know, forceful logic. It has the great quotes about this wolf comes as a, as a, as a wolf, and he who lives by the Ipsy Dixit dies by the Ipsy Dixit. <laughs> it is great stuff. It's good this stuff. This wolf comes as a wolf is a classic. And he predicted Ken Starr. I mean, yeah. and he said, you know, listen, the way this is set up, you know, you could totally have an independent counsel who just keeps expanding the ambit of his or her investigation until it swallows up right. an entire Talk presidency. About under, now, again, we're not talking about the special counsel. Right. We're this still is the old about, version. Right, but it's important to appreciate the, the pros and cons of the current version. Um, so we talked about the appointments a fair amount there. What about removal authority? Right. So removal under the independent counsel statute, the attorney general could try to remove, right, the independent counsel, but only if he or she could convince the special division, again, these three right. judges, and that, that there was good right. cause for the removal of the independent counsel. And that's where you see one of the one of the classic sensitive elements when it comes to the executive power. As I said a moment ago, the executive power by the Constitution is wholly vested in the presidency by, by careful design. Um, it's it's one thing to uh, take with inferior officers, vest the appointment power, which is itself very important to controlling those who wield the executive power under you, like a prosecutor or an investigator. Uh, you take some of the appointment authority away. If it's a low enough official, that's one thing. If the president can't even remove that person, then truly they are independent. And in what sense is the executive power still wholly vested in one person? Well, so listen, I mean, if you're a fan of the unitary executive, as Justice Scalia was, um, then it's hard to understand the majority opinion in Morrison. Right. Um, However, um, there I think there are good defenses, right, of the need for at least some modicum of independence in the context of prosecuting and investigating the president. Um, so I, I mean, I, I'll confess that I'm partial to the majority opinion. Um, but Bobby, I dare say I'm not sure any of the current justices are. I mean, so only one of the current justices was on the court when Morrison was decided. That's Anthony Kennedy, and he did not participate in the decision. Mm. Um, in the Free Enterprise case, better known as the Peekaboo case, yes. um, from a couple years ago, um, the five justice majority led by Chief Justice Roberts actually expressed serious concerns about mm-hmm. Morrison and distinguished it perhaps to uh, analytical fare thee well. And of um, course, this is a little bit uh, 
closing, well, it's not a horse out of the barn situation. It's more of a beating a dead horse situation because, indeed, the horse was dead by then. So the horse was very dead because, um, shockingly, after the Bill Clinton episode, Congress in 1999 allowed the Independent Counsel statute to expire without renewing it. Um, and so since 1999, there has been no statutory Independent Counsel. Instead, Bobby, we've been left with the remains of the pre-Nixon internal Justice Department regulations that allow for an internal special counsel. And so why don't we pivot to that? Right. So, and, and Steve, am I right to say that the, the basic difference, if the battle here is who can control this person, because with control comes the ability to try to, you know, put pressure on the investigation, which is what we're concerned about here. Uh, uh, why are we concerned about that? It's what we should always be concerned when the investigation runs all the way to the top of the flagpole, right? Well, so, and when the top of the flagpole has admitted that he or she oh, has already tried to no, interfere yeah, in the investigation. This is, uh, as someone said online, you know, I, I used the word overdetermined a lot last episode. <laughs> well, this seems like a good spot to revive it. It's, oh, it's overdetermined. Drink. Once again, drink. Bingo. I've got, I've got <laughs> Destiny Vladic bingo. You can't have bingo already. We haven't said portend yet. Or incorate. <laughs> or indeed. All right. So you probably have. Um, so if, readers, if you want to check this out, I tweeted about this. The relevant regulation is 28 CFR part 600. Um, which is a regulation actually that the current version of which are, are your friend and mine, Neil Katyal, was actually instrumental in drafting. Right, which um, is itself pretty interesting. Back in the Clinton administration era. Anyway, but so the relevant provision, Bobby, for our purposes is 600.7D. And what does it say? It says, quote, the special counsel may be disciplined or removed from office only by the personal action of the attorney general. The attorney general may remove a special counsel for misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, or for other good cause, including violation of departmental policies. The attorney general shall inform the special counsel in writing of the specific reason for his or her removal. Is there anything that would prevent an attorney general from just invoking good cause, declaring without regard to the actual facts that the special counsel's you know been irresponsible in carrying out the office, make some kind of pro forma claims about that, and then just invoking the power to fire. I mean, is there any recourse for anybody to contest it? Or is it, as a practical matter, really actually just the discretion of the attorney general? I mean, I think, I think the reality is you could imagine a situation where the special counsel would then sue the attorney general, right, for a claim that the AG had yeah. violated the relevant regulation. They'd have standing, no? Um, they'd probably have standing, right? It probably could work. So um, then it'd be a question of, is the court willing to touch that? Right. And I have to think the answer is going to be no. So, yeah. so I think that the key point is the real value of 28 CFR 600, Bobby, is not the sort of formal legal lines it draws, but rather the political yeah, repercussions of running afoul of them. Right. So if, for example, the same reg had actually said it's the attorney general's discretion, well, if and when an attorney general fired an, you know, an overzealous investigator, there wouldn't be a lot of legal framing for the, for the criticism of that. You really couldn't. But with this, if there's, you have to go through the motions if you're the uh, attorney general, or in this case, the person acting in Well, the- so this is the next thing I was going to say, right? Which is that when the regulation refers to attorney general, right? right? That presumably means whoever the attorney general is on this subject, which and is indeed, not and Jeff Sessions. Exactly so. So this critical point. So Rod Rosenstein, as long as Sessions remains recused, the deputy attorney general remains the attorney general for purposes of this Right, reg. which means that the person who actually is going to be supervising Mueller is Rod Rosenstein. Exactly. Now, how much supervision, when you say supervision, Steve, how much supervision should we imagine is actually uh, taking place there? Actually, not a lot. I mean, so other provisions of the same regulation, and I'm not going to walk through it letter by letter. I encourage folks to read through it. It's not that long. Um, guarantee Bobby, some modicum of independence, right, when it comes to the investigation. Um, So the the deputy attorney general, for example, can require periodic reports 
from the special counsel as to the progress of the investigation, but the regulation, so long as it's followed, is actually supposed to create some, yeah. you know, some walls between ordinary DOJ investigators and personnel and those who are working on the special counsel investigation. Yeah, and so this is, you know, in large part why I take a lot of comfort from this. I feel like this was the step that was necessary to take. Is it's almost it, like we talked about that on the podcast indeed, last it, week. You know, and Bob Mueller may not be as independent as Ken Starr once was, but that's not a bad thing. I well, think. so so let's talk about Bob Mueller. I mean, right? Because that's the next piece of this. Yeah, indeed. So, so a lot depends on what's who they appoint. And we talked Cause, about- Because if they appointed me, we'd all be screwed. <laughs> yeah, who would I even be talking to now? I guess by myself. <laughs> uh, we uh, have emphasized how important the, the people, Matt, this is a situation where the individual theory of history is, right. is really important. Right. <laughs> and uh, Bob Mueller, good choice in my opinion. Okay, uh, can you elaborate? Yeah, I think, look, he's, he's got- Former he, FBI director. He had, he had 10 years on the job, which was the full term. Uh, and Under you know, both, right, uh, President Clinton well, and he, President Bush. And and so he gets an extension from Congress and from the Obama administration right. pursuing a two-year extension because With Obama. Yeah, it wasn't clear who, who would be best to replace him. And darn it, he was, he was good. He started shortly before 9-11 and was the FBI director for that tumultuous first decade. Um, and I think the general reception of his term was this guy is a true pro, exactly what you want in FBI director. So on credibility. Uh, all the credibility you could possibly want. I really think he's he's as good a choice as they could have had. I think the only, you know, the really too bad thing is that means I guess he can't be reappointed to be the FBI, FBI director. <laughs> so apparently there was a, I saw Bobby, this is just a brief aside, a story this morning that um, now there's been a fourth report of a person who turned down the job. Okay, so I actually was about to ask you, Steve, because I'm a little out of touch. Last I heard... Um, they were talking about Joe Lieberman was the latest trial <laughs> balloon floating, um, and there was a negative reaction to that in many circles. All uh, circles. Yeah, I, I, most circles, right? So what, what's the newest So thing? there was another, um, I don't remember his name, someone who I actually had vaguely heard of, uh, a, like a former FBI sort of deputy or something like that. Okay. Um, so career, who, somebody career FBI. Yeah, who announced this morning that he was withdrawn from consideration. Okay, well, um, that's too bad. I, I guess I, I want to take this opportunity, Bobby, to announce to everybody who's listening that I, too— and withdrawing from consideration for FBI director. You, okay. Um, all right. I'm going to have, you know, my, uh, I'm, I've had a lot of money wagered on you. Steve, yeah, well, so you clearly that was a bad bet. I, I am not withdrawing. I am still available. <laughs> <laughs> well, this podcast would get more interesting if you were the FBI director. Oh, uh, wouldn't that? I, I, I vowed it. If they'll let me, I vow if selected and, and, you know, get into the position, I'll keep doing the podcast. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Noted. Anyway, so listen, before we get off, off topic here, well, too late. We'll try to get back on topic. So, so Bob Mueller's a special counsel. Um, Bobby, I suspect what that means is actually not a lot right away, right? That is to say, um, we're going to have now this probably, at least this part of the story, the Bob Mueller investigation, recede from the spotlight because yep. they're just going to go about their job. Yep. And, in, and except in the event, odd, and I think at this point, fairly unlikely event that there's any kind of ham-handed attempt to interfere with this investigation, let alone to try to get rid of Mueller because he's getting too close or something, we'll hear about it. So, and, and uh, you know, we, we saw a little bit of pushback from the president. I mean, he tweeted something about, you know, how... It's a um, witch hunt. It's a witch hunt, um, how no president has ever been subjected to <laughs> such, you know, uh, mistreatment. Um, by the way, he said that in a commencement speech at the Coast Guard Academy. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, but, but I will say... Tweet of the week, if not the month, 
Um, if you guys don't know about or follow Congressman Seth Moulton from Massachusetts, um, Seth's a veteran and he's a pretty young member of Congress, a junior representative. Um, and his district includes Bobby Salem, Massachusetts. <laughs> and so Seth um, responded Man to- Man knows which hunts. Well, that's the, you, you stole the punchline. But yeah, Seth basically, oh, Seth basically responded to the president's tweet by saying, as the, as the member of Congress who represents Salem, Massachusetts, I can say with authority that this is incorrect. That is hilarious. I hadn't seen that. Uh, I love right. it. That Donald right. Trump is not, in fact, subject to the biggest witch hunt in history. <laughs> well, he did say politician, right? He, he didn't. I thought he said, I thought he said, well, whatever. E- either way. Either, either way. way is that, look, you know, as as a student of, of rhetoric, I think we should all admire the use of hyperbole, I guess. <laughs> in any event, in any event. So, so. But so, so I guess what this means, Bobby, is that the DOJ investigation, as you said, unless something dramatic happens, probably going to disappear for a little bit of time off the front page. Yep, and I think that's right. And except, of course, that eventually, if it if it goes the course that it seems like it's bound to for at least some of the lower level people, eventually it will become public in the form of indictments. No, I think that's right. And then, or you know, before that, subpoenas, right, or yeah, other or sort plea of deals, investigative right? steps. Now, where a flag for the listeners to watch out for when you read that someone is doing a deal, someone's pleading, that's going to get interesting because you know why plead? Well, why should the government take the plea? In part to lock in the conviction, sure. In part to you know get that run on the board, but usually also as a condition for the plea, Steve, some cooperation. That's where it could start getting really interesting. True, true. No, I think that's right. Um, which might be a good segue to Michael Flynn. Indeed. So wh- what's happening with him? He's in the news again today. I, I, we should have like a, a weekly part of our of our podcast. It's just like and now for the Michael Flynn update. No, that's been, you know we're going to have to retitle the whole podcast to be specific to him at a certain point. Okay, so wh- what's he done now? Uh, what's he done now? So uh, the story that was, I think, reported by the AP, Bobby, this morning um, is that Flynn is refusing to honor um, a subpoena by, I believe it's the Senate Intelligence Committee, for documents and other paperwork related to his involvement in relationships, I think, with both Russia and Turkey. Um, the AP mm-hmm. wire story just said Russia, but I actually thought it was both. Okay. It would make sense it would be both, I um, think. And this this leads me to a, sort of a couple of different questions. The first is, oh, I'm sorry, someone say, and the AP story says, and the reason for refusing to comply with the subpoena is because apparently he is invoking his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. Now, that explains to me, now, walk me through this. Uh, my reaction to that is- I was going to ask you to walk me <laughs> through it. So if, if the question is, you know, will you I'm testify? I'm not a law professor, but- Right. If, if, you're, if you're saying, I'm not going to testify, I mean, you can have me come there, but I'm just going to give- the Fifth Amendment. I'm going to invoke the Fifth right. as to every question you ask me, or at least most of the questions. Right. In theory, they can ask you some questions where that would not be plausible. Right. What is your name? I'm uh, sorry, I cannot acknowledge. Um, so, but but producing the documents now that gets interesting. I don't think that this is quite obviously a case where you can just say you're not getting anything out of me because all these incriminating documents I have. Well, this is the question. I mean, surely it cannot be that a blanket assertion of the Fifth Amendment privilege suffices to quash a subpoena in this context. No. Um, and so I think the real question becomes, what does Congress, and in this case specifically the Senate Intelligence Committee, do in response? Right. So what are the enforcement options for Congress? So there are four. Um, I tweeted three. Someone pointed out that I had not included the do-nothing option, ah, which you is can, you can, fourth. You can remedy your grave error. Indeed, my grave error. Um, so, so the first and bestest, and I mean bestest in the most grammatically incorrect way, option um, is the old school option of uh, inherent contempt. Mm, right, I that, like the sound of that. It sounds like a good band name. Inherent Contempt. Um, or, you know, title for this episode. <laughs> I'm writing it down. <laughs> Go for it. Um, so um, Inherent Contempt is this sort of old school power Congress had to basically throw recalcitrant witnesses, Bobby, literally into the old Capitol jail. 
Um, oh, nice. Where's that? Well, small problem. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, that's too bad. Um, Congress doesn't have a jail anymore. And so the, the inherent contempt <laughs> and power... And we're all thankful for we that. We're all the better for it. It's probably true. Um, but with the demise of the old Capitol jail went the demise of the inherent contempt power. Um, I think I read somewhere that it hasn't been used since 1857. Well, so, oh, that, that is a long time. But is, is it a full-on case of desuetude? Desuetude. We're back is to, it desuetude or desuetude? I don't know. We'll have, yeah. to, get, we'll have to get James Sullivan on the line and, and ask him. Uh, James Sullivan, if you don't know, King and Spaulding lawyer who wrote this fantastic, I think it was a 2004, 2005 Harvard Law Review note on the subject. Nice. But Good plug. Indeed. If you're listening to Sully, that's for you. Um, well, it's not obvious to me. Okay, so I, it's really it's hard actually for me to see. You don't think it's happening? No. All right. Okay, so what it's are you left happening. with? What is, All right. What's more realistic? More realistic, um, there are two sort of more common options. The first is a referral to the Justice Department for a prosecution for criminal contempt. Mm-hmm. Um, that historically has been much more of the the way this has been litigated. Yeah, so I'm imagining that might not work here. No, I don't think DOJ is going to be in a big old hurry to, to march off on that one. Um, the second option, and this is actually... Oh, I think, well, well, quick question. Sorry. I imagine some listeners are pondering, would that go to the Jeff Sessions Justice Department? The or the Bob Rod Rosenstein Justice Department yeah. or the Bob Mueller Mini Justice Department? Which of the three? I have no idea. Um, so I mean, it's I a cons- Russia-related matter. Well, maybe, except not the Turkey piece of it. I mean, so, so let me back up. I, just I want I, I, I may be going on a limb here. I think the most clear-cut evidence of criminality that we've seen to date um, is the Turkey piece of this, not the unregistered piece of foreign this. agent. Unregistered foreign agent um, actually working on behalf of the Turkish government. Making um, decisions that favored the preferred policy of the right. Turkish government. Right. I mean, a, uh, I think there was what, we have a story in the last week about a change in military policy that was to prefer a particular Turkish strategic objective right. in Kurdistan. So, um, but but so, that suggests maybe not the Bob Mueller. Well, so that's what I'm saying. So that actually strikes me as, if you'll forgive me, the Jeff Sessions Justice Department. Yeah, yeah. But once we start talking about Russia... No, yeah. I don't know. So, so good luck sorting that one out, DOJ. Okay, so what's the third option? It right. sounds like a pain. Let's well, try so the, the third, third option, I think, Bobby, is the one we're most likely looking at, All which right. is that Congress, and in this case, the House, um, uh, sorry, the Senate Intelligence Committee, takes it upon itself to litigate the question um, and actually goes to court seeking a declaratory judgment um, that Flynn is not immune from complying with the subpoena on the ground of his Fifth Amendment rights. So you go bring a civil action to get the principle confirmed and then uh, presumably a, a remedy that requires him to produce documents. Well, interestingly, I mean, so so the best precedent for this is when the House Judiciary Committee in 2000, I think it was seven, sued then White House counsel, or maybe by then she was former White House counsel Harriet Myers, um, over an executive privilege claim, which, Bobby, I think for these purposes is is you know, roughly the same idea. Okay. Um, and it was in the declaratory judgment action that there was an opportunity to litigate the executive privilege claim without having to hold her in contempt first. Um, I could see that happening here. And then what we would have is we'd have a declaratory judgment saying, yes, Flynn doesn't have to, or no, he actually does have to comply. Then contempt becomes, I think, a much more powerful. But then you have the court enforcing the contempt directly for contempt of court in theory. instead of contempt of Congress. In, if, if the depending on how the lawsuits pled, right? Yeah. But so 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 if the Senate Intelligence Committee wants to actually move ahead, and that of course is going to be up to the majority on the committee led mm-hmm. by Senator Richard Burr, who's been pretty upstanding on this for the past several weeks. He's been upstanding. I I, I don't. The, they are asked, they are trying to get him to produce this stuff. Yes, but but how? But now now we're now I we'll mean, see how much. So far they've done the easy stuff. 
Bobby, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. they issued the subpoena. All right, how much weight and effort are they going to? How much back are they going to put into it? Let me ask this: one question to bear in mind is whether, if they did decide to move aggressively on this, is this in some way a threat to the FBI investigation, to the to the Bob Mueller DOJ investigation? So that's certainly what um, Republican leaders in the House and Senate are saying about efforts on Capitol <laughs> like, Hill. Listen, let's just back off and stay away from this. Bob Mueller, he's the man. Let him do <laughs> if it. He can't do it. No one can. Seriously. Um, so I. I I, I see the argument for how if you sort of construct the hypothetical in a very specific way, it could be. Yeah. Um, but these guys are pros. I mean, the, the investigators on the Intelligence Committee, the DOJ folks who are going to be working with Bob Mueller, you know, they, they can they can walk and chew gum at the same time. I, I have faith that, that they're going to find a way to sort of coexist. And also, I mean, it's worth stressing, Bobby, that the congressional and criminal investigations are actually looking at different things. Yeah, that's right? true. There's, there's, there's a Venn diagram. Right. I mean, so, you know, Bob Mueller's mandate is to look for evidence of criminal activity and only evidence of criminal activity. The congressional investigation is by definition and tradition, yeah. right, more of an inquiry into the broader politics yeah. and policy yeah. of the affair. Well, let's not forget something else, which, and I don't claim to understand precisely where the lines are because this is not public, but uh, FBI and DOJ are, are charged for more, with more than just the criminal investigation. They're also responsible, specifically FBI, the foreign counterintelligence investigation, right. which right. is not necessarily coextensive with the criminal Indeed. investigation. Uh, and which gets more and more interesting by the day as we learn more and more details about that fantastic White House meeting Oval Office meeting between Trump, Lavrov, and Kislyak. That uh, that was another item. Is that just in the past few days? Seems like well, a month ago. Already. I mean, so so here's the thing. We knew the meeting t- ha- took place, but now we're learning more and more about Bobby. Apparently, not only did President Trump in that meeting out sensitive foreign governmental national security information, which by the way we now know to have been Israel. Um, Whoops. Well, I think they're in the process right as we speak of forgiving him for that, since he's made such a nice visit. <sighs> So anyways, um, but we also learned that apparently he used that meeting to talk about why he fired Jim Comey. And he had some uncharitable uh, words for our former FBI director. And that reminds me that uh, we're talking about producing documents. Well, well, Jim Comey's got some documents, apparently, or at least he had some documents. So, you know, there's a, there's a, I'm not going to get the wording of this right. But if there's, not, there's, if there's anything Jim Comey loves, it's writing memos to the file. And <laughs> apparently he wrote a bunch about his memoranda for the record. Indeed. Um I suspect, Bobby, there's going to be some Comey memos um, that are either produced or subpoenaed by Congress as part of the investigation. I suspect that Bob Mueller is going to be interested in these memos, which, by the way, are presumably in the possession of the FBI. Yep. Um, so there's paperwork. Um, and uh, and Jim himself will be uh, – has – been called to testify. Uh, there's no date yet set yet. But he's there? agreed, right, that the, the initial story that he wasn't going to testify, that was actually just a scheduling conflict. Yeah. Apparently, even ousted FBI directors have scheduling conflicts. Uh, I, I hope he's busy doing stuff like going on vacation. Um, that's <laughs> I'm obviously sorry, I can't testify. Be... I will be in an undisclosed location sipping a Mai Tai. <laughs> he is, it's going to be must-see TV. It'll cause a, uh, a Twitter-spheric eruption unlike anything we've ever seen. It'll be Vesuvian in its scale and impact, no doubt. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm going to lay off on the whole sort of cataclysmic, you know, volcanic eruption that killed thousands of people analogy, at least for the moment. You, you don't think it, you don't think it's fair to play that card? Not yet. All right, let's, we'll see, let's see what he says. Let's see what he says. That's um, true. It could be boring. But Bobby, I mean, I think it's worth stressing. All of these threads tie together, right? I mean, we are we are at the we are at the beginning of this remarkable convergence of congressional investigations of executive branch investigations, 
that sort of are circling around similar but not necessarily the same topics. They, they could be converging like a whirlpool or they could be about to spin off in a thousand different wild directions like a merry-go-round Seems with like a bunch a of kids hanging out with a, one Seems like a good reason to have a national security law podcast that you listen to every it, it's week. It's to keep us in business, folks. Um, so, Bobby, we actually – we thought we would try to keep this one a little bit shorter. Do you yeah, want to say anything about the, the, the recent U.S. strike in Syria on pro-Assad forces? Um, I'm going to keep this real brief. Uh, there was – you know, we need to not be too distracted – by all these uh, the things that are presidential politics sensitive and keep one eye on. Look at the shiny glowing orb that President Trump has put his hand on. <laughs> exactly. We got to keep one eye on our core national security topics, which of course include the, the, the means with which we fight war, the scope in which war is fought, these questions of who we're fighting against. Things get awfully complicated in the Syria theater. We had a situation uh, reported publicly a few days ago in which uh, what was originally described as pro-Assad forces were moving into an area that was bringing them closer and closer to a facility or location in which it is, I guess, publicly known that U.S. forces train, advise, and equip or you know, do whatever support they do for anti-regime forces from this location. It, it's been a location that's experienced some trouble before. Uh, as I understand it, um, as these pro-regime uh, elements, which I, th I think since then there's been suggestions that these were actually Iranian-backed elements, um, as they were moving into the sort of the, the forbidden zone, uh, the U.S.-Russian deconfliction mechanisms for communication were used to pass the word to the Russians, tell these guys to get out of there now. That didn't have an effect. Then warning shots were fired. That didn't have an effect. Uh, one story I said suggested that this pro-regime force then began taking fighting positions. They were digging in, and it which is, you know, talk about your all-time stupidest decision. When the U.S. military is warning you that they will attack if you don't clear out, you need to bug out. And indeed, uh, this was followed by strikes on those forces, killing some number of those pro-regime elements. And that sets off all kinds of questions about, all right, so w what does that mean in terms of AUMF issues? What does it mean in terms of UN charter issues? I actually don't find the AUMF type questions to be very tricky here. If you take at face value the assertion that you have an armed force moving into an area, um, there's warnings given, they're posing a clear and present danger to the lives of American forces that are actually on site at, at this location, this looks like unit self-defense. So, I, I mean, I think I agree with all that, Bobby. Does it change in any way, not the legal piece of this, yeah. but the sort of the policy implications and ramifications? Does, does it suggest a ratcheting up of any meaningful degree with regard to Assad himself? No, so I, I, I completely agree with that framing. So it's not legally interesting in the sense that it's not le legally <laughs> Are the like, oh wait, not legally interesting. Fast forward. Fast forward. Um, but as, as a matter of the ongoing multi-dimensional chess that is uh, U.S. involvement in that particular theater, it, it's, a, it's a notch up the scale, or however you want to describe it. It's an increase in the intensity of tensions between first- the U.S. and the regime, yeah, but I actually think the tensions mainly felt along the U.S.-Iranian dimension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you put that in context— Which is not a sensitive relationship at all. Uh, an immensely sensitive relationship, but it's also no real—it's it, not a relationship that was going fine and smoothly, and then this <laughs> happened, right? This is already a deeply tense relationship. you got to put it in context with you know one of the major themes of the president's trip this week uh, that starts off in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia with uh, you know, this sort of strong— 
We've got to focus on the Iranian threat message, which, of course, is going to get doubled down on today with the visit to Israel. What's the message here? The message is that Iran is the enemy. We need to focus on Iran. And when you put it in that context, uh, the fact that we happen to be in a position to com- carry out a strike against Iranian forces, who knows, there could have been Iranian, you could have had uh, Iranian forces present on site. We may have killed some Iranians there. Um, this strikes me as the sort of thing that the White House would view as, yeah, that's a, that's a nice sort of back-channel signal to send. I guess just uh, the, the the pin to put in here is stay tuned, right? Exactly. More, so. more, more to see here. But. Yeah. No, there's. I, I know there have been books written. I can't tell you what they're off the top of my head, but there have been books written about the sort of the, the quasi-Cold War with the Iranians, which often runs really hot at times. Um, this, I think, should be viewed as, as a piece of that story. And also yet further reason why Syria is such a quagmire. Indeed. Um, Indeed. So, so, Bobby, let's, let's pivot to something, I don't want to say lighter, but sort of different. Yeah. We're just away, from, away from the news and more, yeah. uh, more in the, the realm of other things we spend time with. Uh, one of the things we do, Steve and I, is spend time with colleagues. And, and one of our most... Who? Colleagues. We have colleagues. It's not just you and me. Really? Yeah, we should, have, we should have some of them on the podcast sometime. They're out there in the hallways. We had we had Matt Tate on. That was we just had Matt check Tate that on. box for a while. It would be awkward if we just brought him in. And here's our random secure transactions <laughs> colleague. We're bringing in Stanley Johansson to talk wills and estates. Hey, you know, actually, a lot of listeners would enjoy. A lot that. of listeners would probably fun than we are. Gonna say. Next thing you know, we're talking about Hobie Gates and yep. his will. Yep. So no, uh, here I'm thinking about external colleagues, and one of our most beloved external colleagues uh, very sadly passed away some time ago. Mike Lewis, who taught at Ohio Northern University, Mike. Was so cool, Steve. Don't you agree? He was such a nice guy, and he, he he really had that passion for the topic and just wanting to get to the the best understanding of the law. He had been a uh, this is the coolest. He was a Top Gun pilot. He uh, sorry, naval aviator. <laughs> he was a naval aviator. I guess he was flying Tomcats and uh, doing all the cool stuff that you do at Top Gun that we all learned about in the so, movie. So 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 who played him in the movie? Uh, you know, I, I'm quite sure he. He was such a kind guy. He seems like kind of a goose character. Goose or Hollywood or someone. In yeah, that, yeah. Although, although, you know, I, I forget. I used to know his, his handle, what, it, what his uh, name was. And Do you remember? I don't. Anyways, Mike, Mike tragically passed away uh, a little while ago. And ever since, a bunch of us have been talking about wanting to have a, uh, a way to honor his memory and his, uh, his passion for scholarship. And so uh, with uh, heavy involvement, frankly, all the credit for this has got to go to Peter Margulies, Roger Williams, Bill Banks at Syracuse, uh, a bunch of others, especially everybody involved in the AALS section on national security law. That's the Association of American Law Schools, our membership organization. It's quite an organization at that. We all agreed some time ago that what would really be fitting would be a, a, a scholarship award, yep. uh, something that would honor the best national security law writing in a given year. And so we're moving towards uh, a fundraising effort for that, but the Straussinger is going to put in a bunch of money. I know a whole bunch of other people, including the the great folks, Mike's former colleagues at uh, Ohio Northern. Um, we're gonna we're gonna gather together a set of money. It's going to be a spin down fund over a period of years, and for the the life of this fund, there will be a nice and generous award to to really give a great shout out and to boost attention to the the best writing from that year. And I think that Mike would have loved that. So the Mike Lewis Prize is in the works. We will uh, talk about this again next week. By which time, I hope we have a, a website up and running on this. Uh, so stay tuned. Put a pin in this one as well. But also, I would just say, I mean, I, the the Mike Lewis Prize, I think, is a great innovation. I think it's also worth stressing. I'm sure at least. Some of our listeners are potentially aspiring academics or aspiring yep. scholars in the field. I have to say, I mean, I, I think we have a fantastic cohort of colleagues. Um, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, 
they're listening. Um, you know, there there are field there are law professors who Bobby I think it's safe to say are not necessarily the most friendly, collaborative, outgoing people. I'm hard pressed to think of any in, in the national security universe who fit that bill. Yeah, we're a pretty outgoing bunch. Except, I mean maybe maybe this one guy who has a podcast with some other guy at, at UT. Oh, those two are the worst. Yeah. But besides those, it's a great cohort and and we encourage more to come join us. And applying for a prize like this is a great way yeah. to, to break in. Totally, totally. All right, so stay tuned on that. Um, Bobby, pivoting to something a little bit different, you have a book. You actually read a book. You know, I've, I've been on this. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I should say, you read a, a non-national security book. Well, this, this probably could be recast as one. So here, here's our, uh, you can tune out those listeners who don't enjoy the non-national <laughs> the security law stuff because we're about to indulge. Um, my, my, actually, my, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law have a podcast um, actually, on on infertility of all things, Matt and Dory's excellent adventure. That is such a great name. Now, d- can I pivot back to Dory for a second? She just was in town for her for her book tour. Uh, how did that go? It went great. Uh, Dory Shafrir, my sister in law, has a new book called Startup a Novel. You should all buy it. It's a fun little. It does look fun. Sort of investigation of of the modern startup culture in and New York. It got a good review in the Times too. It got right? a very good review in the New York Times. I, you know, I, I like to be cool by association. But but I bring up Matt and Dory just to say that you know Matt has has decided that they're going to start posting in their sort of podcast notes when the frivolity begins. Um, <laughs> we're not that sophisticated. No, but that, that requires more time. We'll, we'll just tell you, frivolity is beginning now. So I want to I want to frivolously, but in all seriousness, uh, recommend a book I just finished that I enjoyed so much. I think I discovered this one. I you know we take the kids to you know the bookstore. They're wandering around. I head to the shelves and I just think I don't know what to get. I can't tell by looking at the covers. Do a quick search. Throw in a theme. I, I forget what I did to search what what my my hook was, but it was something about you know alternate timelines or something like that. And so I ended up with. All Are Wrong Todays by Elon Mastai. I actually have no idea how Elon pronounces his name. It's E-L-A-N-M-A-S-T-A-I. And the book is All Are Wrong Todays. And I absolutely loved it. Um, it was, I, I did a tweet that tried to summarize in one sentence. My, my How'd that go? Uh, yeah, actually, I think I kind of captured it. It's, it's a, it, it kind of takes the, the familiar trope of, of there's going to be an altered timeline. There's some kind of time travel stuff that goes on. And then gives us sort of a series of nested stories, if you will, that spill out of this where you keep thinking you know what's going on and then it gets a little more complicated, but in an interesting and unexpected way. And all that stuff is great for the sci-fi geek in me, but it also had a real message about family and love and friends and what's actually important in life. So uh, between that and being a page turner and having and having a, an ability to give you further twists even after you think the twists have all unfolded, um, I'm giving it two thumbs up, Steve, and I recommend it to our listeners. Um, well, I, I'll add it to my summer reading pile, which means I'll probably get to it in about 2026. Well, what's really funny is I, I had gotten two recommendations that day from whatever search I'd done. Yeah. That was the first one. Now I'm on to Blake Crouch's Dark Matter. And so I'm excited about that right. one. It's kind of got a similar thing. So my problem is that when it comes time for me to do my summer, my, my, my fun summer reading, I pivot toward like biographies of historical figures and Supreme Court <laughs> justices and the like. You are, you're more the intellectual than I am, my friend. No, I just feel like if I'm going to read a book, I might as well like, you know, get some professional useful utility out of it. <laughs> That's super not how I do it. Well, and, and which one of us is happier? Uh, it's a tie. We're both pretty happy. <laughs> 
Um, well, so speaking I'm of, even happier than you because of say. our bet. Let's talk basketball. <laughs> well, I was going to say you're happy now, but in a couple hours when the no, Spurs are swept out of the playoffs. You know, I know you think that's what's going to happen, and I realize that's the conventional wisdom. But conventional wisdom was also that the top three nominees for the MVP would not include Kawhi Leonard. And now, what, that actually was not the conventional wisdom. At the time that we made the bet, right, we checked yeah. out the betting markets on this, and it was actually pretty close as to whether Kawhi yeah. was in the top Which four. Which sound, sounds right, right, that yeah. it would be close. Um, so but the Spurs, LeBron! I know, it's, look, it's crazy, and it's, he's obviously a victim of sort of that, that kind of Hollywood uh, right. Oscars he's the best kind player, of deal. He's the best player every year. Right, and so it's like, look, everybody knows he's the best player. Can't, you know, you got to share it around some. It's, but it's not called the most valuable player, not named LeBron, right? It's called <laughs> the most valuable player award. This, it reminds. I mean, there were year, there were years yeah, when Jordan, Jordan didn't get it, and it. And Carl Malone won year. Right? Yeah, and it was sort of like the lifetime achievement award. That, that was another Oscars deal. That was lifetime achievement. This was just you had a bunch of people that were really rising, and people would just seem to forget about LeBron. I agree. There's no way he's not. I think LeBron's probably the best player if you're if you're objective and not coming at it from the hometown. Angle like Probably that, the best player. Probably. Hey, look, aren't you giving me any credit for going that far? Aren't you surprised? <laughs> I guess I'll give you some credit. Um, right, the real question is, what's happening the rest of the way? Are the, the Celtics and Spurs both completely done for? So you know, I was I was shocked beyond words. I, I turned off the Celtics uh, uh, Cavs game yesterday yeah. when the Cavs were up by twenty something. Um, to my surprise, I found out later the Celtics actually won that game. Um, I suspect that was an aberration, and the Cavs will be like, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're done with you, Celtics. Yeah, well, we thought you guys were just giving up. we got to show up. It does seem increasingly likely, although I'm telling you, you heard it here. Spurs still in seven in the most dramatic, unbelievable comeback when Kawhi Didn't you Leonard— did say Spurs in six previously? Did I? Okay, <laughs> I, I'm tape. slipping. I'm slipping. Go to seven. Hey, I'd go to nine if I could. <laughs> <laughs> so wouldn't they? Um, well, so I guess, Bobby, probably by the next time we talk to our listeners, the Spurs will be home for the playoffs. Um, kind of like my Knicks. So you say, but I am willing to say like that the it, Mets. if and when this happens. Oh, the Mets. Boy, that's not looking good. Um, if Conforto. Uh, I, I'm kind of going to quickly pivot over to my hope that maybe Chris Paul would come to San Antonio. That's what the Spurs could really use. How about that? <sighs> Get, the Clippers have had a nice run. It was very unclipper-like, but it's unnatural for the Clippers to be good for so long. Let's revert to how things ought to be, but let's get him out of L.A. Don't go to the Lakers, Chris Paul. Come to San Antonio. It's a Wake Forest tradition. <laughs> because, you know, Chris Paul's listening to this podcast, too. You know, I met him once. He was so cool. Um, I don't, I don't doubt that at all. But did, but did you meet Cliff Paul? <laughs> it may, was that who I was meeting? I, he had the glasses. Did he have the glasses? The mustache, the whole deal. All right. So now that we've lost everybody, um, so Bobby, <laughs> barring barring further unforeseen developments, I think we're 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 thinking that we might spend our next episode on a really deep dive into the military commissions. That would be uh, fun. A topic we've been meaning to get into for a while. Um, now these two cases are moving in the Supreme Court. We've got the government's response to the cert petitions in Al Balul and Al Nashiri due next week, along with. You know, some amicus briefs that I may or may not be involved in helping to draft. It's going to interfere with your biography reading time, but you got to really do it. It really is. It actually <laughs> really is. And it's really annoying. But life. Life goes on and the beat goes on and the show will go on. Somehow, some way. All right. So with that, everybody stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next week. Adios.